On the 21st of March, 1960, on the dusty roads of Sharpville, outside of Johannesburg, policemen opened fire on a crowd of peaceful protesters. 69 of them were killed. The man who organized the protests and did so much more for the advancement of human rights was known to his friends as Prof. This is the story of Robert Sobukwe. Well, it's about time in blind history that we turn our attention to the country of our origin and birth, and that is South Africa. And it's entirely appropriate that we focus on a less well-understood, less well-known hero of South Africa's 20th century, a man called Robert Mangaliso Sobukwe. He was born of all places in Graf Renet, and we'll tell you his story in a minute. But probably the most important facts about him that you may already know is that he was the founder of the PAC, the Pan-Africanist Congress, and he founded that with some other members of the initial grouping of that uh, political party. And he was a South African teacher. In fact, um, most of the sources on the internet say teacher, and that's where they leave it. There's obviously a lot more to Robert Sabukwe, but I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Anthony Meterer. And it's good to speak to you again on Blind History. Um, Robert Sabukwe is a fascinating dude, right? He was. I was intrigued, and it was what it came out of it for me was the South African government and its absolute worst, especially near the end of, of Robert Sabukwe's life. Well, interesting in a number of ways, and people try to draw parallels between Sobukwe and Mandela, and there are some parallels. I mean, they were both um, tried, both sent to Robben Island. Both of them were, were, were lawyers in practice at a certain point in their lives. The big difference is that you could argue one was treated worse than the other, and you've got people who will argue that Sobukwe was treated worse than Mandela and others who will argue the opposite. But in the end, these two were both giants of the struggle and, and very independent thinkers, um, not the kind of people who you could enter an argument or a discussion or a debate with unarmed because they were both extremely smart people and deeply, deeply concerned and passionate about their cause. Correct, 100%. And exactly what you said, you can't convince them otherwise. I mean, they, Robert uh, we had a strongly believed in, in his Africanism and later on Maoism, but more importantly that he's fundamentally Africanism. And if you weren't with the majority, then you weren't African and, and you didn't belong. It was curious to read his, his actual writings and his philosophy and, and, and what Africanism actually is. You know, a lot of people and, and growing up, I also had this very contrived idea of what the PAC was. You know, they were left of the ANC. Turns out that one of the reasons that he wanted to get out of the ANC is because he thought they were too left. And the PAC's Africanism started off with him saying there is no such thing as race. He believed we're all the human race and that the idea of making race central to your argument is actually problematic. Now, I don't know how well that would go down with the left today, but perhaps he was prescient in that respect because he saw his role as bringing South Africa together, bringing Africa together. And he said in a, in a beautiful quote, uh, which I think is, is in, it's inscribed on his tombstone in Hrafrenet, the idea that we should all rest under this tree together. And if you want to be a part of Africa, that there's nothing that stops you, uh, provided you are happy to accept that the majority of the people must make the rules. And I think that that's probably something that many people 
feel is not unreasonable. That pretty much sums up, I think, his his approach. Um, and and obviously it was very much against what the apartheid government was on, and they viewed him as enemy number one. Well, he has the distinction of having a clause that was enacted by Parliament, a statute, in fact, which was created specially for him, the Subukwe Clause, which meant that they could broadly apply the, the, the law of keeping someone incarcerated wherever and whenever they liked without having to think about human rights or anything else. And it actually just allowed them to arbitrarily extend his imprisonment whenever they felt like it. That was brutal because he went into prison for incitement in 1960. I think there's, maybe we talk a little bit later about that. It was a massive event in South Africa, but in our history, but he went in for two years. That was his original sentence. And then they, he ended up serving nine years. And because of this clause that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, I think we'll start off with his early life. He was born in, in the, the middle of the Karoo in Hrafranet and he was the youngest of six kids. He came from a very poor household. His, his dad was, very, very uh, decidedly for education for all of his children. And they managed to get him into Heald Town, again, famously a place of, of many of the struggle stalwarts, one of the few places where education was available to them. And then, of course, went along the familiar route to Fort Hare University, where he actually, actually joined the ANC Youth League all the way back in 1948. And he was actually elected the president of the Student Representative Council there. And that was really where he started to awaken politically. But he was a very studious man. And I saw a great interview with um, one of his friends who he was at school and at varsity with. And they said that he never had a girlfriend. He wasn't distracted. He took studying extremely seriously. He listened to Mozart. He liked to read uh, Darwin. He was an extraordinarily academic and studious man. Up until that point, he wasn't really interested in politics. I think it's the studies of a native administration, I think that brought him close. And then a lot of, like you said, there was a lot of young black South Africans and black students from African countries that exposed him to politics and really piqued his interest. And I think from there, because he was so, he was an intelligent, well-read person, an extremely good orator, which he shared with Nelson Mandela, that's where he started coming to prominence. He was also a physically prominent man. He was quite tall. He had uh, fine features. You know, he was imposing, if nothing else. And a lot of his friends used to call him Prof. And in fact, this was this was a name that he kept for most of his life. Uh, they'd refer to him deferentially as Prof because he did become a professor. He became a professor at uh, Wits University at a time where it must have been very, very difficult for a man of color to achieve that kind of role. And he he continued throughout his life to read to reason, to say only the things that he knew he really believed in that were absolutely true. But his life turned around on a day that we mark in every year, in every calendar, a day in March, which we now call Human Rights Day, a day which commemorates the Sharpeville Massacre. And Robert Subukwe was really the man who put together a defiance campaign, which we still mark uh, annually in South Africa as being one of the moments at which the history of the country turned and changed. And by this point, he had founded the PAC because he was disillusioned and, and maybe disillusioned to software because I think it was quite a lot of internal battles within the ANC where, where he felt they were following a multiracial policy where he was looking at non-racial. And so by then he had already formed the PAC and was the, their first president. And so it was actually, this was led by the PAC, so to speak, this, the, the Sharpeville Massacre. 
It was. And, and obviously the Sharpeville massacre to those who don't know was a watershed moment in South African history. He wanted the people of Soweto to march on the nearest police station in Orlando and to defy the pass laws. The pass laws required black Africans to present a pass anytime they were asked so by police and they were only allowed to travel within certain hours. They weren't allowed to be out of black areas and in inverted commas outside of those hours. And the threat of arrest was hanging over every black person's head, even if they were just trying to get home from work. Um, something which, which in a very, very dilute form, some of us have come to experience during lockdown with curfews, but it was much more brutal and militant. And they decided on peaceful protest. They wanted to march in numbers so that they couldn't all be arrested. And to make a point across the country, all the branches of the PAC had got together. And on that day, the 21st of March, they were going to march on the police stations. Of course, it didn't go very well because even though Robert Subukwe had gone to the trouble of first resigning from Vitz in a very eloquent letter in which he put his position across that he needed to follow his political instincts and lead an, an organization and to lead black South Africans into freedom. He also sent letters to the police saying, please, can we try our best? We are planning this protest. Let's try to keep it nonviolent. And he hoped, I think, in his heart of hearts that it wouldn't become an ugly bloodshed day. Of course, that was not to be. So the PSC had organized in various areas, and this was in Sharpeville. In the end, 69 people were killed, and he was arrested. The government immediately banned the PSC and banned the ANC as well. And that was when he was incarcerated. But it was 100% right, Gareth, a massive turning point in the history of our country. It was really the moment that the, the old government, the old regime had hoped for, because now they could prove, oh, you know, there's this danger with the black majority. and We've got to impose stricter and more stringent and more brutal laws. And our past laws are definitely going to stay in place. You know, they doubled down. And he was obviously... Uh, sent to, to jail fairly quickly. He was tried. He was found guilty of breaking a number of laws, incitement among them, sentenced to, originally to only three years in prison. And those three years were served at, at Constitution Hill, um, another famous prisoner of Constitution Hill. And one of the reasons that our constitutional court is based there is because Robert Subukwe spent his time there. And by the way, doing hard labor, it wasn't like he was just put in the cell. He had to do hard labor as a part of his sentence. And then post that, he was uh, moved to Robben Island, where he remained for the additional six years. And that was, as per the clause that you'd mentioned earlier, the Sabuque clause. So it was renewed every year, which is absolutely ludicrous. It's just, uh, yeah, this is one of the sad parts of, of our history. And then and you, um, have to, you have to imagine, because his wife, Veronica, has, has done one or two interviews. Um, she passed away, I think, in recently, 2017 or 2018, at a very advanced age. Um, and she, she said a few things about him. He was a very, you know, kind of, he was a, a learner. He was an academic. He was a, a professorial type of man. And for him to be sentenced to hard labor for those first three years and then to be put in the conditions that he was put in Robben Island must have been extremely difficult for him. On Robben Island, and I visited Robben Island and spent the night on Robben Island once, the single place that caught my attention as we drove past it, because at that point it wasn't even part of the museum, was Robert Subukwe's house. It was on the route between the maximum security prison, where all the famous prisoners that we know of, including Nelson Mandela, stayed, and between that prison and the, the quarry where they went to work every day. 
was Robert Sabukwe's house, and it was surrounded by fences. He lived on his own. He was not allowed contact with other prisoners. And he was isolated from them because in the eyes of the of the old Nationalist Party government, he was the most dangerous of all because he was also, you know, this extraordinarily clever man. And he used to watch, he used to wake up in the morning, never really knew when his breakfast would come. It was part of the reason that, you know, it was such torture. And he'd start his day by going out to the fence and waiting for the other prisoners to go past. He couldn't speak to them because then he'd be punished. So he would just pick up a handful of sand and let the sand fall to the ground again, kind of saying, this is our land. Don't forget, we've got to keep fighting for our land. And all the other prisoners, it was part of their ritual to kind of salute him as they walked past on their way to the quarry. But there was a, there was already a, a difference of opinion and a difference of politics creeping in between the ANC and PAC. And many have argued that Robert Sabuko was treated much more unfairly because of that unbelievable isolation he was subject to. And it affected his health very, very badly. You can just imagine spending six years in total isolation, you know, no communication, although they say that, that he managed to at least communicate somehow with sign language. He was allowed the occasional communication with his wife, Veronica, and, and his best friend, Benjamin Pogrand, who he met at Wits University and who became his biographer much later on. And I've seen interviews with Benjamin Pogrand, which are extraordinary. Very, very interesting friendship that these two built up over the years. Benjamin would send him, you know, clothes and whatever he was allowed to. He once tried to send him a carpet and they said uh, that was not allowed. In fact, Robert Sabukwe said, no, don't make it too luxurious for me in my little house. I must remember I'm in prison. Um, but he, w- he would ask for underwear and for socks and that kind of thing. And he was quite particular about what he would and wouldn't accept. But, but he also uh, studied. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he got his law degree in prison. That's right. He got a couple of degrees while he was while he was locked up. Eventually, as I said, his health started to deteriorate. He was a smoker, a lifelong smoker. He used to smoke a pipe. Again, very professorial, you know. And um, I think that the the government saw that they would have a problem on their hands if he died in jail. They released him into banishment, in inverted commas, in Kimberley, of all places, Chalishewe. And he was sent there to a little house where he was allowed to um, stay with his wife, but he was under house arrest. He wasn't allowed to, to do anything political or he'd go straight back to prison. So th- the rules were extremely strict and he wasn't allowed political visitors, although I think he did meet with Steve Biko during that time. But also during that time, which is another sad point, was uh, he, he received offers from, I think, two in particular universities in, in the United States to take up posts there. And he requested that he wanted to take him, his, his family, him and his family over there to take up his posts. Right. And, um, and then the then Minister of Justice, John Foster, just denied permission over and over again. Yeah. They really just would not, they were, they were scared of this guy. It's such an expression of what an incredible person he must have been that they were so terrified of him that they wouldn't even let him speak to anybody. They wouldn't let him go overseas. You know, <laughs> he must have really been the boogeyman for them. And then he started to get sick and he needed proper treatment. But once again, around the time that he was very, very sick and needed treatment, there were such strict rules of his movement and what he can and cannot do. And without saying it led to a more premature death, I think it did play a role because he had to wait around, he had to get approval. There was a lot of red tape around him um, getting proper help for his, for his cancer. Absolutely. He died in 1977 and... You know, many people say that we missed out on 
one of the true intellectual heroes of the struggle and someone who was a deeply principled man, they eventually inscribed a very interesting quote on his tombstone. It was These are his words. True leadership, and I don't think anyone, by the way, can argue with this. This is one of those things that unless you're, you're an ignoramus or you are willfully being destructive and stupid, can you disagree with this? Listen to this. This is beautiful. He says, true leadership demands complete subjugation of self, absolute honesty, integrity and uprightness of character, courage and fearlessness, and above all, a consuming love for one's people. Sure, you can't argue with that. Yeah, he was buried back in Hrafrenet, and um, luckily, one of the few things that our Department of Arts and Culture, or whoever it might be that's responsible, have done, because they're not good at keeping up history, and particularly non-ANC history, something that the PAC are very bitter about, and that they should be. Um, they have restored his grave in Hrafrenet. They've, they've, I think they've almost made it a bit uglier, but at least someone's looking after it. Um, he was buried in quite a simple grave. It's got a tombstone. His wife is now buried next to him. But, you know, his children live all over the world and, in fact, grew up for much of their lives in America. He sent them over there to study with the little money he had. And he was famous, by the way, for giving away lots of the money that he was meant to keep for his own you know, use. And, and he never lived anything close to a grand life. He was a tremendously humble man right to the end. Someone who I wish I'd known more about. You know, I, I, he died before I was born, but I would have liked to have known more about him. Um, I would have liked to have, have had the opportunity. And his voice was never recorded. His friend, Benjamin Pogrand, often says that he regrets the fact that he didn't record him in their few meetings that they had in Kimberley. Uh, he and his wife, Anne, used to go and visit uh, Robert and Veronica. And he said he was so scared of recording him just in case that got him, Robert, into trouble. And, you know, again, we missed out on a real leader here. If you go to that little house in Robben Island, which is tiny, it's the size of probably, you know, most people's bathroom. And it was really neglected as, as part of the whole Robben Island exhibit for the longest time. I know that they've opened it up now. Um, but to get the sense of complete isolation and despair that this man must have gone through during that time while he was working away trying to get these degrees, but the idea that he couldn't speak to anyone seems to me to be a punishment that is the most cruel kind for an intellectual. Agreed, 100%. So there he is, Robert Mangaliso Sobukwe, who died in 1977 and really has left an enduring mark on South Africa. And the PAC continues to be uh, a party which has a very limited but I suppose an, an intellectually important history in South Africa. Um, they're obviously one of the tiniest little parties now, and, and that's largely as a result of what happened after Robert Sabukwe and the fact that the ANC can't claim him as their own and therefore don't go to huge trouble to emphasize his role in history. But a man who's uh, affected the, the course of South Africa's uh, story. You know, a man in history that I'd like to learn more about now. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I found reading about him and, and uh, listening to those interviews extraordinarily interesting. So there he is, Robert Sobukwe, a South African we can be very proud of, and a man who, who did what he said and said what he thought, which to me has always been the definition of integrity. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, 
as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a beautiful story about how when a police van uh, got a flat tire in Khalishewe, he walked over and helped lift up the police van. And some of the other PAC members said to him, why are you doing this for these dogs? You know, meaning the police who were the enemy. And he said, if you want to change people and you want people to be better, you have to love them, which I think is beautiful. Sure, that's incredible. Just gives insight to who he was.